If you open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we continue our expositional walk through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, which is the Apostle Paul's rather long letter to the church he founded in the southern Greek city of Corinth. So far, we've gone through the first four chapters. For most of the summer, our associate pastor, Blake Johnson, has led us through the one-chapter letter of Jude, planning to wrap it up next Sunday. And not only did this give me the opportunity to get a much-needed new body part, it has been an extremely rich look at another first century church situation that has striking parallels to the situation in Corinth. Although probably written about 14 years after 1 Corinthians, the letter of Jude was a serious warning about those in the church who were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, which is in the fourth verse of Jude. The Corinthian church was strikingly similar, very much affected by the morally bankrupt society they lived in. Many people in this church were living in such a way that there was hardly any recognizable difference between their lives and the lives of the people who did not know and belong to Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth. In the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians... Paul wrote to them about their divisions and their factions and their love affair with worldly wisdom and power and influence, all of which fed their ungodly appetites for recognition and boasting in their own expertise and accomplishments. No wonder there was so many serious divisions and infightings and jealousies and quarreling in this church. They were dividing into groups in which each group was claiming to have the inside track to deeper and more vibrant spirituality because the leader they were following was better than the leader the other groups were following. Paul spent all of chapter 4 taking them back to the cross of Christ and what true Christian leadership really means. He laid bare the stark contrast between their attitudes and what his attitude was as an apostle of Christ, reminding them of what he and the other leaders had taught them as their church was born. He also ended chapter 4 with a strong hint that some kind of discipline was headed their way. Now in chapter 5, Paul directly confronts the church with their utter neglect in not dealing with an intolerably sinful situation right there amongst them. 
If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 5, be reading from the English Standard Version. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Now some of you may already have a host of preconceived ideas about this topic that can utterly paralyze you the very moment you hear some of these words and phrases. Please do not harden your hearts before we even begin. Please do not let your past ideas or experiences keep you from hearing what God says. And please do not allow any sudden discomfort you may feel about confrontation or church discipline keep you from desiring to know what God says about it and why it's so important. I'm praying and have been praying that all of us would truly be able to thank God for this passage 
which we just voiced. His word, God's word, we need to be thankful for. Now, instead of seeing discipline in the typically negative light of being judgmental or vindictive, we need to first recognize that this is exactly what biblical discipline is not. We don't like the idea primarily because we've never naturally been comfortable with being disciplined by someone or something outside of ourselves. Our individualism just resists this idea. Jonathan Lehman writes, For the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents, and every relationship and life station is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled, whether we're dealing with the prince, the parents, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or, of course, the local church. I'm principally obligated to myself and maximizing my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I retain power to veto everything. What a quote. But still, most of us realize that in most every area of life, there has to be discipline by some kind of authority to make requirements actually mean something, to keep cheaters from unfairly gaining an advantage, to keep legitimate reputations valuable, etc., 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 Isn't it true that one of the only places that we really resist principles of discipline being applied is in the church? Why? Shouldn't we see these biblical instructions being applied and managed graciously and carefully and prayerfully so that Christ's church reflects him and weeds out hypocrisy and scandal. Discipline is not applied to harm one another, but rather to help each other. And that's what chapter 5 here explains. There is a reason we're going through this whole chapter at once. Dividing it up would not only be really painful, but if you ever got out of context of the whole chapter, you'd be lost and wouldn't be able to think about it clearly. So, here we go. We're going to look at this chapter by looking at it in three parts. Part one is verse one, and the first part of verse two, and it answers the question of what situation precipitated the need for this church, Corinth, to exercise discipline. We read there, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. 
Ought you not rather to mourn? So here in verse 1, Paul doesn't waste any words as he begins to deal with this troubling issue, does he? The way he says it's actually reported, what that means is that this situation is well known and obvious to everyone, and there is no doubt about what's happened. Paul is actually in Ephesus as he writes this. Eastward across the Aegean Sea from Greece and Asia Minor. And he has received this report. Remember, he founded this church. He knows many of these people. The word for sexual immorality here is pornea. And it refers to any form of sexual immorality or sexual misconduct. The sexual immorality in the Corinthian church, we read, is a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. In other words, even the pagan society around them strongly condemned this type of behavior. This man in the Corinthian church, we read, was and still is sexually involved with his own stepmother which is how you understand the terms that Paul uses here. And this, of course, is incest. John Murray writes that Paul's obvious exasperation underlies the grossness of the wrong involved. The word used for pagan here is important. It's Paul's normal word for Gentiles. Gentiles meaning anybody that's not a Jew. And why is this important? Well, because most of the Corinthian believers were Gentiles. However, Paul, and here's the point, doesn't think of them anymore as Gentiles. He thinks of them as being in Christ and belonging to the covenant of the people of God. And so their behavior should reflect their new status. Then in the first part of verse 2, we see what the attitude of the Corinthian believers was concerning this shameful behavior. And what does Paul say? He says they were arrogant. Instead of being filled with grief and mourning, they were pleased with their spiritual condition, despite what was going on in their very midst. They were gladly tolerating this man's behavior. They saw no need to take any action at all. This is really an eye-opening example of a perverted view of God's grace and tolerance. And even... It's none of my business kind of idea. If this was a man of influence and position, it only points to the Corinthian preoccupation with honor and status. Don't upset the the cart. This guy's powerful. It'll come back on us kind of idea. But it sure looks like they'd found a way to rationalize away what he was doing, doesn't it? How about... This, you think they were thinking something like, we're free in Christ. 
so we no longer are bound by the law. We will take suggestions, but in the end, we're going to do whatever we see fit. Paul will deal with human sexuality in a much, much deeper way a few chapters from now. But it's still a good time to ask ourselves just how we respond to the biblical mandates about sexuality. And each of us needs to ask ourselves that question. Does what the Bible say and teach about human sexuality affect us? Maybe a better way to say it. Have we agreed? And are we under the authority of what God's word says? Willingly, gladly. In our thinking, do we make room for alternative or other forms of sex outside of the marriage of one man and one woman? Do we waver on that? Paul will not allow this church to continue to ignore what's going on here and just not do anything. In part two, the second half of verse two through verse eight, Paul answers the question of what method of discipline did this situation require then? And why? And he writes, let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Direct. Blunt. And here's the principle. Whenever sin is not repented of and becomes a way of life for a professing Christian, what happens? It increases and it increases. And it starts starts affecting the other people in the body of Christ. What we need to understand is that we cannot tolerate sin within the church anymore then we should tolerate it within our own lives. Struggling to put sin to death in the Holy Spirit's power and desiring to grow in our sanctification and so live a life of repentance, that is very different than letting sin enslave you to the point that you are rationalizing it away and not truly repenting of it at all. And I hope you see that difference because that is the key to this passage. Paul writes to the Ephesian church this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, And then the part we don't like, but instead expose them. He also says, look carefully then how you walk. One pastor has explained it this way. We must recognize the need for identifying and cleansing sin within the church. 
when it is found, we should be in spiritual mourning until it is cleansed. So, in this clear-cut case here in Corinth, which the whole church is aware of, Paul instructs them to remove this man from the fellowship. Blatant, unrepentant sinning, kind of in your face. This is what I'm doing. You can't do anything about it. I don't want to do anything about it. That should not be tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to explain more of why this is necessary and what it means. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul, who's not even there and yet knows what's going on, easily sees what must be done, while the church that this is happening in doesn't even regard it as a real problem? Well, maybe they do now. Can you imagine this being read and the gathered body? They read the whole letter at once, most probably. Might have been silent for a long time after that one. What's clear in verse 3 is that Paul, as Christ's apostle and the founder of this church, solemnly commands the Corinthians to take appropriate action and remove this man. And the action to be taken is affirmed by Paul. Why would that be important? Because the people in this church are not left hanging. When you are assembled, he writes in verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, catch that, this is important, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, then he says what they're supposed to do. The church was to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus to do what they knew was God's will, was Christ's will. And this means that they can be sure that they are acting in Christ's power and blessing. And I hope you recognize how vitally important that is to know. After all, they are following the principles that Jesus gave himself in Matthew 18. And when they are assembled, Paul is assuring them that he too is with them in spirit. Why is this important? Because this is hard to do. In verse 5 we see that there are grave consequences that go with this excommunication. He writes, You are to deliver deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now this means that this man is delivered over to the consequences of his sin. 
and will be in the world on his own, apart from the care and the support of Christian fellowship. In other words, he's in a place where Satan dominates. And that is a scary place to be. He will be allowed to suffer all of the consequences of his actions. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. Why? Why? So that he'll be convicted of his sin. And hopefully will truly repent. And no salvation on the day of judgment. This is the hope here in verse 5. It's not vindictive. It's with the hope of restoration. A quote here from Kim Riddlebarger that I could not resist. I think we all need to hear it. I've read it a hundred times already. Church discipline may indeed be used by the Lord to lead to the person's repentance, restitution, and forgiveness. It must be exercised firmly, but incrementally and pastorally with the goal of seeing the disciplined person restored. The church which does not exercise discipline is a church which itself is being unfaithful to the Lord of the church. That church which exercises church discipline as a retributive punishment to merely shame or embarrass the sinner is also not faithfully practicing church discipline. The goal is always restoration, and there is nothing as joyous as a sinner sinner repenting. Marty and I actually witnessed something like that when we were very young, just out of college, ministering on staff at a church in Austin. And we got to see a young lady who came back. There's no words to describe it. God does do this. And that's our hope if we have to. Besides the hope that this person will truly repent and be restored, there is another extremely important reason why this man must be disciplined. Paul explains in verses 6 through 8, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, 
the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. First off, he says, your boasting is not good. What is he telling them? He's telling them that because they still love human wisdom and human recognition and the things of this world actually more than they love Christ, that they are completely blinded to the blatant sin that will destroy the Christ, this Corinthian church if they don't remove it. In other words, look where your arrogance and boasting is taking you. So to allow this man to remain in the church is to allow this horrible situation to fester even more and impact the whole church. It's what they'll be known for. Oh, this is the church that has allowed a person naming the name of Christ to live in incest with his stepmother. End of gospel presentation. And as we already seen, this man, the man involved also, would not be pressured to repent if they don't do anything. Sometimes discipline must be severe because the consequences of not disciplining are much, much worse. In other words, this Corinthian church will cease to be a true church if they do not act. And the picture Paul uses to get this point across is a very familiar one in the Old Testament in which leaven or yeast is removed from the Jewish household during Passover. Just a little leaven affects the whole loaf, and leaven stands for what is evil. And already in the first five chapters of this letter, the sins of strife and factionalism and the wickedness which led to a man taking his stepmother in a scandalous relationship are here pictured as those things typified by the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. These are the things the Corinthians are supposed to remove so they can live as the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now listen carefully. Once justified before God because of the merits of Christ, which are received by faith alone, Christians are now to strive to live lives of gratitude and sincere obedience before God. New leaven, new life, new creation. And now Paul in part 3 in verses 9 through 13 answers the question of what other types of unrepentant offenses require discipline and how should it be carried out? So, in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter. What does that tell us? First thing we find out here is that Paul had already written an earlier letter to these people that we don't have, and he wrote it in order to address some of these issues but the Corinthians had completely misunderstood what Paul said. So now he's going to clear this up. 
And boy, does he clear it up. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. What a complete surprise for many of the Corinthians and probably a lot of us. What? The sexually immoral were people who lived by the Greco-Roman sexual ethic rather than by the biblical ethic. In other words, the culture's sexual ethic was largely immoral. And Christians' lives were supposed to be distinctly different. Their cultural sexual ethic could be described easily by just one phrase. It's called sexual promiscuity. Keeping mistresses was common. Homosexuality was widely practiced and tolerated. Pagan religions were tied to temple prostitution, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. The Corinthians had misunderstood Paul, thinking he said to avoid and not associate with non-Christians. But that's not what Paul meant or said at all. Some Christians still try to completely isolate themselves from the world. And this has failed miserably down through history. Paul simply says that this would mean you'd have to go out of the world, which is impossible. Medieval monks tried to sequester themselves completely away from outside sinful influences, not realizing how powerfully the sinful nature within them still would be. Being in the world, but not of it, is our calling. And it is a very, very difficult calling. It doesn't mean we compromise our beliefs to win the world for Christ, or think that we can, or that we intentionally put ourselves in situations or places that we know are spiritually dangerous for us. That's not wise. We're easily deceived, all of us are, by how strong we think we are in the spiritual battle. Wisdom and dependence upon Christ and his word are so important as we navigate living in our sinfully saturated world. We've got to ask this question. Do we realize, I mean, we know this, we talk about it, but do we really realize how much of our own culture is so highly sexualized? And we think, oh, this is new. No, it's not. It's been around since day one. What's new is that we have every technological device in the world now to spread it all even faster. For example, in our culture, sex before marriage, the biblical term is fornication, or outside of marriage, the biblical term is adultery, are so commonly accepted that anyone holding 
to biblical standards is usually what? Ridiculed. Openly ridiculed. Homosexuality is now seen simply as a lifestyle choice, tolerated, and even vibrantly celebrated. Pornography is available on almost every device in our possession and almost universally seen or rationalized as being harmless. But it opens a Pandora's box of sins and enslaving behaviors and broken relationships. And as Paul contends for the biblical ethic for the people in this church in Corinth, we too, as Christians in the 21st century, have got to realize that we are commanded to live in purity according to the biblical sexual ethic that has never changed. There are many similarities between the Corinthians' cultural morass and ours. In verse 11, the meaning of associate with here is obviously important. What does it mean? It literally means to be mixed up with. Its form here is in even a more powerful form And it means to keep intimate, close company with. One dictionary described it in terms of a vine wrapping itself around a trellis. That's mixed up with. In fact, if you've ever tried to pull a vine off of a house or a trellis, what is that like? Does it just come off? a great example a great example and he says but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one so What does all that mean? A Christian must not be associated with people who profess to be believers but who still live like they are not. He's not talking about people, avoiding people who are struggling with sin. We've got to emphasize this over and over and over again. All of us struggle with sin to some degree. He's not talking about someone who's struggling with it. He is talking about people who continually self-justify their sinful conduct and who show no genuine signs of being concerned that what they do is an offense to God. In other words, there's no true repentance. There's There's no true sorrow, no godly sorrow. And notice that Paul has expanded his list of behavior patterns because that's what he's talking about here. Behavior patterns that bring disrepute to the church, to Christ himself. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is one especially suited for Corinth, but it covers the bases pretty well. The greedy. 
These are people known for their constant pursuit of dishonest gain. The idolaters are known for worshiping idols, especially in Paul's day. We have a little more subtle forms that are just as powerful today. The reviler, who's known for their verbally abusive behavior in all areas of their life. The drunkard, who's known for their frequent intoxication. The swindler, who's known for seizing or stealing by extortion. So what are the people in the church called to do in case, in the case of one of their own who bears the name of brother if he is found guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not to associate with and not to even eat with. I'm just letting this sink in because we've got to be willing to ask what, those, what that means. And you can probably guess that I'm not going to try to rationalize this away. While some take the reference and eating to eating, referring to the Lord's Supper, Paul is more than likely referring to table fellowship, which meant much more in the ancient world than it does in ours, especially in that part of the world. The person removed from fellowship would already be removed from celebrating the Lord's Supper as a matter of course. To eat with someone in their home was to establish a bond with them. And yet Paul does not forbid Christians from eating in non-Christian homes. In other words, it's the close association and identity with the disciplined person that brings disrepute to Christ and his church. It's like when you see that vine wrapped around the trellis in front of your home. You can't tell the difference between where the trellis is and where the vine is. You just see the vine wrapped around it. And that's how people would view people in the church who are still associating with people who are bringing, dragging God's name through the mud. That's the point. It's that close association and identity with the disciplined person that brings disrepute to Christ and his church. And it can be spiritually dangerous for those who are extremely wrapped up in every aspect of that person's life. Remember growing up, what are you doing running around with that kid? I don't want that kid to be your friend. He does this and he does that. We were like, oh, I'm going to do what I want to do, sneak out, run around with him, whatever. What ends up happening so much of the time? Your parents were actually right. Pretty soon, you're doing the same thing. That's a simple life principle. And that's what this is talking about. And remember, if done properly, this person would have been through numerous encouragements and warnings and appeals to see the danger of their sin and repent before this even had to be done. If they'd been doing it right. But people under discipline are by definition those who have dug their heels into the ground. 
and said, I don't want a warning and I don't want grace. I don't care about how my actions affect others. That's a pretty good picture of the type of person we're talking about here. The church cannot tolerate this kind of evil in its midst because it undermines the proclamation of the gospel. And getting away with it may also influence others to just do as they please because everybody is looking for some excuse to kind of do more of what they want to do. Now, those who are, here we go again, because we've got to go back all this, all the time. Those who are weak in the faith and who struggle with their sins, in the Bible are called bruised reeds, broken reeds. Those people must be nurtured and comforted with the promise of the gospel. But those who claim to be Christians, yet who live like pagans in indifference to the law of God, are to be expelled from the church unless they truly repent. Paul's words, again, are not directed to struggling sinners. Struggling implies they're fighting it. They're trying to fight it. But to those who profess faith in Christ, but then live as they please. And he summarizes all this in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I would bet that the vast majority of churches that we've grown up in or that are in operation today would almost say that's an anathema. That church people should never be that way. We're always just supposed to love, 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 love. And what he's saying here is that if you truly love somebody, you will carry through with this. Because not to carry through with it is putting that other person's soul in jeopardy. And that's not love. That's selfish hate. Despite the difficulties with it, Christ commands it of us. God judges those outside, Paul says. Purge the evil from among you. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The wonderful news in all this is that Jesus Christ's death is effective for sinners. Turning aside God's wrath from them so that those who repent and believe never need to fear God's judgment. Since the cross is the revelation of the wisdom and power of God, we actually undermine the credibility of that gospel we claim to love so much when we overlook those things which bring scandal to Christ's church and when we fail to discipline those who claim to trust in Christ but act like the cross has no power whatsoever to break sin's hold over us. And with that, I will say... Amen, and let's pray.
Oh, Lord God, we are so humbled as we go through your word all the time. And it seems like this book is especially written it's for, for our culture today and what we see happening. And it makes us realize that the world has always tried to get away from you. That's what Satan's doing, Again, trying to get us away from you. And that's impossible. Lord, we want to be faithful as your children. We desire to live our lives in such a way to bring honor and glory to you. And we know we still stumble and fall. Lord, we pray for your protection that we could grow in faith, that we could um, see your power changing us, that we could follow you in your commandments in the really tough ones like this. And Lord, we know that we cannot do this unless we are humbled completely before your throne of grace. Why would you save any of us? Our hearts were so rebellious to you. We were your enemy, and yet you sent Christ to die on the cross in our place and pay the atonement for our sin. We are actually completely forgiven because of the blood of Christ. And Lord, we pray that that attitude will continue to grow in this place amongst us, in our hearts, and that we could live in humble submission and glad obedience, trusting in your power to walk and learn and grow each day. Lord, we thank you for putting us together with other believers who can are used by you to encourage us to stay in your word, to seek your face, to know you more and more. For that, we give praise to your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dismissed.